Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of The Devil's to Pay, John Buford at Gettysburg, Eric Wittenberg. Eric Wittenberg, author of The Devil's to Pay, John Buford at Gettysburg. What's that title, The Devil's to Pay? Well, that, that's actually an anecdote that comes from among the episodes that I recount in the book. Uh, during the first day of the Battle of Gettysburg, John Buford's troopers held off Confederate infantry for long enough for the First Corps infantry of Major General John Fulton Reynolds of Lancaster uh, to arrive on the battlefield. And Buford had gone up into the cupola of the Lutheran Seminary at Gettysburg and was uh, looking out over the field with field glasses when General Reynolds rode, rode up and Reynolds called out to him, what goes, John? And Buford's response was to point at the long lines of advancing Confederates and he just looked at General Reynolds and said, the devil's to pay. So that's where the title comes from. When did you decide you had to write a book about John Buford? I started researching John Buford at Gettysburg in 1992. What took so long? A lot of things. Um, originally, it was going to be a full-length biography that I was going to do alone, and then it was going to be a collaboration with a friend. And unfortunately, I write much more quickly than my friend does, and I grew impatient with waiting for him and ended up going off on a couple of other tangents, but I always planned to come back to it. And having documented all of the other cavalry actions at the Battle of Gettysburg, it was became very obvious to me that this was the glaring omission and I needed to f complete the loop. So I decided, after having done all those years of research, that it was time to finally go back and close the circle. And having written this book, I've now documented in book-length form pretty much every major cavalry engagement during the Gettysburg campaign, save three that took place three days apart, five days apart, excuse me, June 17, 19, and 21, in the Loudoun Valley of Virginia. Everything else I've now covered in something book length. What did it mean to be a cavalry then? I mean, what, what was all involved in it? Well, you have to realize that, that in those years, unlike today where cavalry is either a tank or a helicopter, in those years, cavalry was a man and a horse. And soldiers had to learn how to become cavalrymen. They had to learn how to take care of their horses uh, particularly northern cavalry. The southern cavalry had an advantage for the simple reason it was a much more agrarian society and people were much more used to riding horses, whereas clerks and shopkeepers and factory workers from the north who were going to become cavalrymen had to learn how to care for their horses. They had to learn how to operate on horses. They had to understand that the horse comes first because a cavalryman without a horse is an infantryman with a saber to trip over. So it was very important for them to put the care and maintenance of their horses first before even their own, and then to learn how to function as a massed unit. Horses are by nature skittish creatures. They are 
often scared by loud noises and they had to train the horses how to become uh, comfortable with the idea of gunfire, particularly coming from their backs. So it, it took a long time to, to train the Federal Cavalry and for it to come up to par with the Confederate. And uh, by the spring of 1863, that big difference had more or less balanced out and things began to change. And, uh, Buford is particularly notable for the simple reason that he was a dragoon. What's a dragoon, you ask? Dragoons were soldiers who were trained to fight equally well mounted or dismounted. So on one hand, they would perform the traditional roles of cavalry, which are scouting, screening, and reconnaissance for the army when it's on the move, but they also were equally adept and equally well trained to dismount from their horses and fight like infantrymen. Buford himself had come up through the, the dragoons. That was his pre-war assignment was to the second United States Dragoon. So he had spent his entire 13-year regular army career before the outbreak of the Civil War using these types of tactics, learning how to fight equally well mounted and dismounted and how to perform intelligence gathering and scouting and screening and all those types of things. <clears throat> so it, it took a long time, though, for him to train these volunteer soldiers. And by the time of the Battle of Gettysburg, they had become equally adept at, at doing these things. Some of the best intelligence gathering work of the war was done by Buford in 62. And then in, in the summer of 1863, you have this magnificent stand by 2,800 cavalrymen who hold off an entire Confederate infantry corps of close to 10,000 men for the better part of three and a half hours on the morning of July 1st. Was cavalry a, a kind of a sexy assignment? Was it thought to be the desirable kind of the swashbuckling guys? It could be. It certainly was on the Confederate side. Um, the Confederate cavalry commander was a fellow named Jeb Stewart, and Stewart was known for his flamboyance. Uh, he was a fellow who wore a, a black hat with a big ostrich plume in it, and he liked to sing, and he liked to, liked to, to have fancy balls for the ladies, and liked to uh, entertain the ladies, and it was all about the glory, and, and it was all about the appearance. Now, don't get me wrong, because Stuart was an extremely capable professional soldier, uh, none uh, less than, than his former commander, John Sedgwick, who commanded the Sixth Corps at Gettysburg, said of Jeb Stuart that he was the finest cavalryman ever fold on the North American continent. That's a direct quote. Um, but Stuart was known to be flamboyant. John Buford, by contrast, was as plain as an old shoe, is how he was described by the, the great historian Bruce Catton. Um, Buford wore an old hunting jacket. It was uh, not a general's coat. It was a three-button jacket like an, uh, an enlisted private would wear. Uh, he wore old worn-out corduroy pants. He wore cavalry boots. He uh, typically had a pipe in his mouth. If it wasn't in his mouth, it was in his pocket with a big pouch of tobacco. And uh, the men loved him. They would follow him anywhere. They would do anything he asked of them. They called him Honest John or they called him Old Steadfast. Why'd they love him? Because he was one of them. He didn't put on airs. He wasn't one to, he wasn't one to ask men to do anything that he wasn't willing to do himself. And because of that, they loved him. And you said he, he learned to be a dragoon in other fighting. Where did he fight? Well, it, it goes all the way back to, he graduated from West Point in 1848. So the, the Mexican War was winding down as he was graduating. So he didn't participate in the Mexican War. 
He was instead assigned and spent nearly all of his pre-war career to different postings in the, the Southwest, in New Mexico and in Arizona and those places, and engaged in campaigns against American Indians. Uh, in 1856, there was a pretty major campaign against a, a Sioux tribe called the Brule Sioux, and uh, the Second Dragoons were part of the expedition that was sent out to punish these Brule Sioux Indians, and there was a big battle in Nebraska at a place called the uh, Blue River, and uh, as a consequence of that, there was a, a pretty nasty fight there where the Indians got thrashed pretty badly, and Buford was along on that expedition, and in fact was the regimental quartermaster for the Second Dragoons at that time. So his pre-war combat experience, since he didn't fight in Mexico, was almost exclusively in either chasing after banditos who crossed the border or in fighting American Indians. He was also at Bleeding Kansas. He was in Bleeding Kansas, but he wasn't really involved in much combat there. That was more of a peacekeeping mission. When, when he was fighting, when a, a cavalry would fight on horseback, would they, you mentioned the saber, would they use their saber like you see in like medieval fighting? Or, Sometimes. or did they shoot from the horse? Sometimes. Sometimes both. The Confederates considered it ungentlemanly to uh, fight with sabers. They preferred to have mounted combat be with pistols. But the North trained its soldiers to be proficient with sabers, which, as you know, are curved bladed swords. And uh, in the instances where there were mounted combat, uh, more often than not, they were fought with sabers in a hand-to-hand -hand type of a situation, sometimes with pistols, often very unpleasant and at very close range. Uh, there are descriptions of the Battle of Brandy Station as an example, which is the largest cavalry battle ever fought in the North American continent. There were 21,000 cavalrymen engaged that day of guys literally you know, going hand-to-hand -hand boot to boot from a distance of as close as you and I are, hacking at each other with sabers for a couple of hours at a time. On horseback. On horseback. But they were also trained to fight dismounted. But that creates a different issue because, again, a cavalryman's a man and a horse. Well, if you're going to fight dismounted, what are you going to do with your horse? So one out of every four men was detailed to hold his horse and those of three of his buddies so that they were nearby and you could mount up and move out if you needed to and or they were also out of the danger zone. You say in the book that um, Civil War cavalry had three main missions. You mentioned them, scouting, screening, and intelligence gathering, but no mission was more important than intelligence gathering. Were there times they would just go long periods uh, at a time without fighting but just spying? Uh, sure. I'll give you a good example. Uh, during the early phases of the Gettysburg campaign. And the campaign actually began on the 4th of June when the first Confederate troops left the defenses of Fredericksburg, Virginia, headed for the Shenandoah Valley, and then they were going to march down the valley, cross the Potomac River into Maryland and on into Pennsylvania. For the first really week and a half of the campaign, the, the, there was an awful lot of work being done by the Confederate cavalry to keep the Union cavalry away so that they wouldn't find the exact disposition of Lee's army as it was strung out in the Shenandoah Valley. The three fights I mentioned to you earlier that took place at Middleburg, Virginia on June 15th, uh, I'm sorry, Aldi, uh, 
Virginia on 17th, Middleburg on the 19th, and Upperville on the 21st were really three instances where, where Jeb Stuart and the Confederate cavalry took the fight to the Union for the most part in an effort to keep them away. So it, it's almost like a cat and mouse game. And there was an awful lot of that took, that took place. Uh, many times you'll have cavalry being sent on expeditions that are sometimes called raids, but were really intended to find out what the dispositions of the Union soldiers were. The most famous example of that is, is by Stuart and it's during the uh, 1862 campaigns around Richmond where uh, General Lee wanted to know what the dispositions of General McClellan's army was. So what did Stuart do? He made a ride around McClellan's army that was a great embarrassment to McClellan and, and to the federal government, and not the least of all to Jeb Stuart's father-in-law, who was the commander of the Union Cavalry, General Philip St. George Cook. And uh, it, there was really very little fighting except for some rear guard skirmishing in that action. But the whole thing was, was designed to be a ride around the Army of the Potomac to find out exactly where it was. And it worked. Well, since you mentioned the, the divided family, <clears throat> Jeb Stewart's father-in-law, um, John Buford grew up in Kentucky? Well, he was, he was born in Kentucky. His mother died of typhoid fever when he was a boy. And uh, the family, I'm sorry, not typhoid fever, cholera, when he was a boy, and then the family moved to Rock Island, Illinois. But his roots were in, Illinois, were in Kentucky, and most of his family was in Kentucky. Was there any thought that he might join the Confederacy? Well, in fact, there was a great deal of thought he might. Uh, at the outbreak of the war, Buford was, along with most of the 2nd Dragoons, were in Salt Lake City, what's today Utah. Uh, in 1860, elements of the U.S. Army were sent to Utah to put down what they thought was going to be a rebellion by the Mormons. And uh, they stayed there at a place called Camp Floyd, and that's where Buford was with the outbreak of the Civil War. And the governor of Kentucky at the outbreak of the Civil War was a man named Beriah McGoffin. And McGoffin was very pro-secession. But the General Assembly, the legislature of Kentucky, was very pro-unionist. So they came to loggerheads. So McGoffin came up with the only idea that he thought would work, which was that Kentucky would be Switzerland and be neutral. And at that point, McGuffin offered to John Buford command of all of Kentucky's troops. And uh, John Buford's roommate in Utah was a, a, another man who became very famous as a Civil War general and even more so as an Indian fighter in the years after the war named John Gibbon. And uh, John Gibbon also had southern roots. His family was from North Carolina. And with the outbreak of the war, one day Gibbon found John Buford in, in his room. They were roommates. They shared a room and said to him, what's wrong, John? And, and Buford said to him, well, I've gotten a letter from the governor of Kentucky, and he's offered me anything that I want, meaning command of those troops in Kentucky, to which Gibbon became concerned and said to his old friend, he said, well, what are you going to do, John? And uh, Buford looked at, at Gibbon and his slow style of speaking said, I have written him and told him I am a captain in the United States Army and I intend to remain one. And that's exactly how it, how it stayed. Kentucky was a slave state? Kentucky was very much a slave state. But they did not secede, is that they right? They did not secede because the legislature wouldn't let it happen. And also, being the, the state where Abe Lincoln was born, Lincoln wasn't about to let it happen either. 
But it's, it's a very interesting because Buford had a first cousin by the name of Abraham Buford, who uh, was one of the most renowned thoroughbred horse breeders in the world at the time. And Abe Buford was also a West Pointer. He has also had served in the Dragoons for, for 13 years before the war, from 1841 to 1854, before he resigned his commission to go home and take over the family thoroughbred horse farm in, in Kentucky. And uh, Abe tried to remain neutral, but when the Confederates invaded Kentucky in the late fall, or late summer and early fall of 1862, at that point, Abe pitched in and, and was commissioned a general officer in the Confederate Army and actually ended up commanding a cavalry division under the notorious Nathan Bedford Forrest uh, beginning in, in 1864 and for the rest of the war. So uh, there you have two first cousins who are divided like that. Of course, the best example of that, there were two brothers from Kentucky. Uh, their father was a United States senator. The last name was Crittenden. And uh, one of them was a major general in the Union Army. And one of them was a major general in the Confederate Army. Well, while you're on the subject of family, I have to ask you about this gentleman, John Buford's older half-brother, Napoleon Bonaparte Buford, graduated sixth in his class at West Point in 1872. And, uh, 1827. Oh, sorry, 1827. And you, you quote Ulysses Grant as saying, he would scarcely make a respectable hospital nurse if put in petticoats and certain is unfit for any other military position. <laughs> well, you know, Napoleon Bonaparte Buford had that great martial name, but unfortunately his military talent didn't match the, the splendor of his name. Um, it, it's fair to say that there were only a handful of people that Ulysses Grant absolutely hated. Napoleon Bonaparte Buford was one of those people. He absolutely detested him. Uh, Napoleon had a very inflated sense of his own ability and his own worth. Uh, there's this great anecdote. I, it didn't make it into the book, but there's this great anecdote about how at one point he was uh, trying to say that he didn't approve of Grant being promoted to command of the Army, that he believed there were only three officers that were capable of defeating the Confederates. And uh, he named George McClellan was one. I can't recall who the other one was. And he said, but mod and modesty prevents me from naming the third. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, when Grant heard about that, he about fell over laughing. Um, Grant detested him. Um, he was a difficult, fussy, not very good subordinate. He almost cost Grant a battle early in the war, and Grant decided to rid himself of him. And he ultimately ended up being banished to a post in, in Arkansas where he flew a desk for the balance of the war and couldn't create too much difficulty there. So it's, it's really an interesting story. And then uh, there, part of what goes along with that is, is that um, there was a pol policy in the War Department in those days. And the policy was that no two brothers of the same family could attend West Point and or Annapolis. They didn't want the military being dominated by single families. Well, it, Napoleon had graduated in, in 1827, and he served in the regular army for a while, became a lawyer and an engineer, and resigned his commission. John wanted to go to the military academy, and it took some pretty sharp lawyering by Napoleon to persuade them that John was his half-brother, not his full brother, and that because he was his half-brother and not his full brother, admitting him would not violate the policy. 
First time they tried that argument, it didn't work. Second time they tried that argument, it did work, and that's how John Buford got admitted to the West Point class of 1848. Who were some of his classmates? That's not a class that was one that the, the, the stars fell on, like the class of 1846. The class of 46, uh, many people say is the greatest class ever because it, it included McClellan, it included Stonewall Jackson, it included John Gibbon, who you heard me talk about earlier. It, meant it included A.P. Hill. I mean, the, the list goes on and on. The class of 48 was not quite as star-spangled uh, as the class of 1846. The most notable graduate of the class of 48 was a guy by the name of Nathan G. Evans, who became a Confederate general who was notorious for being a drunk. And even though he was a pretty good soldier, ended up being removed from command by, by Robert E. Lee, who brooked no, no nonsense from from any fool, and he got tired of, of Evans being in the bag most of the time and ultimately relieved him from command. There was also a very capable Confederate cavalry officer by the name of William Edmondson Jones who had the colorful nickname of Grumble. Uh, Grumble Jones and Buford were, were West Point classmates and they both served in the cavalry before the war. So I think it, and you know, Jones was a Virginian and a farmer and I think that they probably had a fair amount in common personality-wise, and while I can't sit here and say for sure, because there's not any documentation one way or the other, it wouldn't surprise me a bit if they were friends at the academy. How do you keep track of all this? How do you remember it? My all? wife asks me that all the time. Um, and she'll occasionally ask me, when's my birthday? <laughs> when's our anniversary? Just to make sure that all this stuff is, is still where it's supposed to be. I just have, after so many years of addressing this, you get to know the people and it gets kind of burned in my memory after a while. So I've got a pretty good command of those things. Um, sometimes I think it's, I just have a head full of useless information, but. Is it a full-time thing for you? I practice law full-time. So you are a lawyer during the day and then you go home and read Civil War books at night? And write them. Do you ever get tired of it and want to write about something else? I did, I wrote a book on baseball. What was that? That book is, is one I actually came up with the idea when I was 13 years old, and it took me until I was 51 to get it published. But the title of the book is You Stink, Major League Baseball's Terrible Teams and Pathetic Players. And it was written with a friend of mine who's a, a native Pittsburgher who now lives in, in Fredericksburg, Virginia, named Michael Obrecht. And my original concept was that the book was going to profile the worst teams in the history of Major League Baseball. And Michael persuaded me we should do more than that. And we ended up having, so the first section of the book is those terrible teams. And there are unfortunately too many Phillies and Pirates teams that are prominently featured in it. Then the second section is what we call our Hall of Shame, which is the terrible plays, terrible players, whatever. The third section is a year-by-year -year timeline of dubious distinctions. And then finally, the last section is six or eight pages of quotable quotes on losing. So it, it's something completely different and something that's completely out of my wheelhouse, but it, it's very gratifying to see something that I came up with the idea when I was 13 years old in 1974 um, to actually have it come to fruition all those years later.
Well, that brings to mind Brigadier General Joseph R. Davis, Commander Davis's Brigade, Hess Division. Davis, a nephew of Confederate President Jefferson Davis, was not competent to command a large body of troops. How often did you come across sort of the Civil War version of your book, You Stink, where you see there's a, a general who just doesn't know what he's doing? All too often, unfortunately. Well, Joe Davis's primary qualification to command a brigade of infantry was that he was Jefferson Davis's nephew. I mean, that's it. By all accounts, he was a nice guy, he was a, 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 a good lawyer, but he was not a soldier. And with the Civil War being as political of a thing as it was, there were an awful lot of guys who ended up with ranks they shouldn't have had because of politics. The best example of that I can give you is probably uh, Benjamin F. Butler, Benjamin Franklin Butler of Massachusetts, who was a very powerful congressman from Massachusetts, and he was a Democrat, and Lincoln felt he needed some allies among the Democrats, and Butler ended up being one of the most senior Union generals at the end of the war, and one of the least competent. Just terrible, just an awful general. Uh, and there were a lot of those guys, unfortunately. The Speaker of the House of uh, Representatives, Nathaniel P. Banks of Massachusetts, they called him Commissary Banks because the Confederates used to uh, raid his commissaries and, and his supply depots in the Shenandoah Valley and resupply themselves using Banks's supplies. So uh, just because you were a politician didn't make you a good general. And, and there are, of course, exceptions to that rule. There were some who were very good, but for the most part, they weren't. Do you get together with other people like you and just sit around the table and talk about Civil War things? Often. Yeah, we're, we're a bunch of geeks. Well, what, what is there to discuss that hasn't already been hashed over a million times? Oh, there's plenty of controversies in, about, out there to talk about. Plenty of things to, to discuss. Uh, lots of armchair quarterbacking. Second guessing. Is there a lot of pitch disagreements where you're poking each other in the chest? and I, I've never gotten into sides. one of those. I've ne I can't honestly say I've ever gotten into one of those, but there have been plenty of discussions where, where people have had very strong opinions and strong disagreements. And a, a good example of one in the Battle of Gettysburg, and I talk about it some in the book because it's pertinent to Buford's leaving the battlefield. Uh, one of these political soldiers was a man named Daniel Sickles. He was a major general in the Union Army, and he was also the head of the Tammany Hall party uh, machine in New York City. And Sickles ended up where he ended up because of that. And he made some bad choices on the morning of the second day of the Battle of Gettysburg and basically disobeyed a direct order and moved his command forward to a position on higher ground than what he was supposed to hold in violation of direct orders from General Meade and ended up nearly sacrificing his corps. And one of the great controversies of the war that still rages to this day, it began almost immediately after the battle in, in the newspapers with Sickles writing uh, letters under the, the pen name, uh, historic as he called himself, uh, defending his move and criticizing General Meade. And the, the merits of Sickles' move forward, whether it was a good thing, a bad thing, is something that is still strongly debated by even people who spend years and years studying the Battle of Gettysburg and studying the Civil War, even to this day. How often do you come across situations where uh, <clears throat> an officer just ignores orders? 
and does something or doesn't do something that they're ordered to do. More often than you would think, Nathan Bedford Forrest was notorious for that sort of thing. If he didn't like an order, he just would flat out refuse to, to obey. And at one point, he went to the Army commander and, and told him, don't give me any more orders because I won't obey them. He's lucky he didn't get himself shot for that. Um, there are a lot of instances where that sort of thing happened. Uh, part of it's because there's a military concept called C cubed I, command control, communications, and intelligence. In our modern society, communications are instantaneous. Walkie-talkies, radios, telephones, whatever. You and I can communicate immediately. In those days, you didn't have that luxury. There were two ways to communicate. You either sent couriers back and forth with notes, or you used semaphore, you used signal core. So I could give you an order, and it could take an hour to get to you, and the situation might have changed between the time I wrote the order and the time you receive it. So there, there might actually be good reasons to disobey orders under those circumstances. Does that how, make sense? Yeah, yeah. But how was John Buford in that regard? Was he kind of a wild card, or did he stick to his orders? No, Buford was a guy who was very good at obeying his orders. He, as a career regular Army soldier, he understood seniority, and he understood the hierarchy of the army and he understood the command structure such that it was, he understood that, that military discipline depends on subordinate officers obeying the lawful orders of their superior officers. That's the only way military discipline works. And, and Buford understood that. Where you come, and there were even regular army soldiers who had problems with that concept, but where you seem to have more issues with there are guys like Forrest who were not formally trained. What was Buford like as a commander? He was a guy who was very, how do I want to put this? He was a guy who was not afraid to commit his troops. He was not afraid to take on a fight. He never turned away from one that I could ever find. But at the same time, he was very caring of his troops you know, having been a come up through the ranks as a company commander, where and having been known as as the authority on horses in the in the United States Army, uh, because of the family background with thoroughbreds in Kentucky, um, he understood what it was like to be a guy in the ranks, and he didn't have airs about him. He didn't wasn't a guy to lord it over the men who served under him. And that's you asked me earlier why they loved him. That's really why. He was one of them, not a guy who was remote and distant and, and I'm the boss and you do what I say, because that just wasn't his style. What was he like physically? Height, size, weight? He didn't was a, a beard. He did not have a beard. Uh, he had dark hair. He had a, a mustache. He was described by one of General Meade's staff officers as having a little gray triangular eye that he was a good-natured fellow, but not one to be trifled with. He was about five foot eight. He weighed probably 150 pounds. And um, he was a fellow who liked, liked his pipe. He liked tobacco. He was from Kentucky. It's not hard to come to the conclusion he probably had a taste for good bourbon. Um, he was a guy who was a guy's guy. That's probably the best way to describe him. 
You say in the book that in many ways Buford deserves credit for the Union victory at Gettysburg, which is a pretty broad statement. It is, and I, I think it's a defensible statement for the simple reason that it was John Buford who picked the ground. Um, it was his arrival in town uh, on the morning of June 30th that allowed him to see the good ground to the south and east of the town that ended up being the main Union defensive position at Gettysburg. And it was his choice, knowing that the Confederates were coming from the west, to defend that ground by taking the fight far away from it so that there was a position to fall back to. Military term for that's a covering force action, where you, you trade space for time. And, and what Buford does is he sees this good ground and he elects to leave that good ground instead of occupying it, but rather to move to the, to the west and north of the town to defend that ground by conducting a delaying action so there was someone placed to fall back to for the main body of the army when it came up. How did he come to be in Gettysburg? He was ordered there. By who? By the Cavalry Corps commander, Alfred Pleasanton. Did he know at that point, Pleasanton or Buford, know that the big battle was about to happen? Oh, no. This was before. This is, those orders came through on the 28th, and Lee had, was just ordering the concentration of his army about that time. There was no way to know. So it's just coincidence he happened to show up there? Not entirely. I mean, Gettysburg was an important place for strategic reasons, for the simple reason that the railroad went through there. And there was a very large road network of 10 major roads that all converged there. And the far-flung elements of Lee's army, now you got to remember, on the 28th of June, Jubal Early is almost all the way to the Susquehanna River, having taken York. The other two divisions of Ewell's Corps, Richard Stoddart Ewell's Second Corps, were operating between Carlisle and Camp Hill. North of Gettysburg. North of Gettysburg, north of Carlisle. It was also known that there, was, there were Confederate infantry arriving in the vicinity of Chambersburg. The road network that would carry those far-flung elements was one place where it all came together, Gettysburg. So if you looked at a map and you understood the terrain and you understood the dispositions, Gettysburg is the logical place to send a force to try and hold it so that you control the road network. And that's exactly what Pleasanton had in mind. So how did Buford come to be the guy who picked the terrain, picked the location? He was in command on the ground. He was the highest ranking officer in the town and he made the decision and when Reynolds came up and saw the ground and, and he and Buford consult, got to consult, Reynolds said, probably, we don't know exactly what they said to each other, but uh, the conversation probably went something like this, that's good ground, you made the right choice. And that's when Reynolds ordered the First Corps to come up at the double quick and take position. And uh, that's how the first day of the battle begins to develop once the infantry engages. You say in the book that Buford and his group really distinguished themselves on the first day of the they battle. They did. How, how did it all unfold? Well, it all goes down to this whole idea of trading space for time. And Buford created this defensive scheme that if you stand in the town square in Gettysburg, the farthest of his picket posts, or the, there's a term for it, it's a French word, vedette, and vedette means a, a mounted sentry, mounted picket. The farthest picket post away from the, the town square in downtown Gettysburg was seven miles. That's how far flung 
this early warning system that he designed was from the, the center of town. And the whole idea was that he was going to fight a delaying action, trade space for time. So there are three ridges between, uh, of note between Gettysburg and the Cashtown Pass through South Mountain. And those three ridges are called Knoxland Ridge, Hers Ridge, McPherson's Ridge. That network of pickets, the vedettes, are as far out as Knoxland Ridge. They fire the opening shots. The Confederates aren't expecting it. And just by virtue of firing opening shots, it hit nothing because they were outside the range of the weapons that the, the Union troopers were, were carrying. Heath's division's got to stop and shake out from its column of march into line of battle, which took almost two hours. So as they begin to advance, they then drive those pickets back. And, and you got to realize that a picket post is three or four men. They're every 50 feet. So the, this is a thin line, maybe 200 men. They get driven back to Hers Ridge. They make a stand on Hers Ridge for 45 minutes. They get driven off of Hers Ridge and back onto McPherson's Ridge where the main line of battle is. This begins at 5 a.m. By the time Reynolds arrives, it's 9.15, and Buford has fought from those positions, falling back, holding off that Confederate infantry long enough to allow Reynolds and the First Corps to get there. That's the whole idea, and that's exactly what they did. It was, Buford designed it perfectly. He implemented it perfectly. It was so well designed and so well conducted, it's still taught at West Point today. Was that, was that the plan all along, or did it just sort of unfold that way? No, that like, was his we got to get out of here. Let's go to the next ridge. No, that was the plan. And, and it really comes right out of the, the book, so to speak. Uh, there was a, a, a book published by the War Department. It was called The, the Outpost Manual for uh, Troops in the Field, and it spells out exactly these things I've just described to you. And it's all based on what they were taught at West Point from the teachings of uh, Professor Mahan, who was the guy who taught all the military tactics and the military science, and it, this stuff comes right out of the textbook, and it was executed perfectly. And it's interesting because the, if you follow it forward and, and you, you look at what NATO's defensive strategy was in Germany during the Cold War, as you'll recall, Germany was divided. There was an important mount, mountain passage in central east, the, on the border between central east Germany and central west Germany called the Fulda Gap. And it was always believed that if the Soviets ever attacked, their armor would come streaming through Fulda Gap. NATO's defensive scheme was exactly what Buford designed and implemented at Gettysburg using tanks instead of horses to defend buy time and trade space for time to allow the main body of the NATO armies to respond, to react to the, the, the Soviet army. So, you know, the old cliche of more things, the more things change, the more they remain the same. It's a perfect example of it. Did Buford know where the main U, uh, Union army was and when they were going to arrive? He had a pretty good idea. He had stopped to talk to Reynolds on the morning of June 30th on his way to Gettysburg. And Reynolds was in command of more than half the army at that point. Reynolds had First Corps, Second Corps, Third Corps, excuse me, First, Third, 
11th and 12th Corps, four of the seven infantry corps under his command. And he knew exactly where those soldiers were. And Buford knew that four of the seven infantry corps were within half a day's march at Gettysburg on the morning of July 1st. And of course, the, the 1st Corps and the 11th Corps arrived and fought. The 12th Corps got there, and uh, its commander refused to come up and take command of the field after uh, Howard was, or, uh, after Reynolds was killed, and, and the 3rd Corps got there that night. So Buford had a very good idea that, that over 35,000 men were within a half a day's march. How close did the Union come to losing the battle the first day? Very, very close. And if you want to look at it as, as who won day one, clear Confederate victory for the simple reason that the, the 1st and 11th Corps got driven off the battlefield. And the Confederates didn't follow up on it, largely because they were pretty well fought out, and also it was getting dark. But part of the reason why they didn't press their advantage and, and try to pursue right up to Cemetery Hill, where the main Union defensive line was being constructed, is because Buford and his troopers were in the way. And they, uh, they mounted up and, and prepared to make a mounted charge against Confederate infantry. And using Napoleonic tactics, which is what they taught and, and, and used in those days, if you were infantry and you were under threat of a, of a saber charge by cavalry, you stopped and you formed a hollow square. And that was the defensive scheme. And, and there are some who say that the Confederates formed a hollow square that afternoon. I don't know for sure. I address that question in the book. We do know, though, that something stopped them. And whether they formed a hollow square or not, ultimately, is not really that important of a question. But what is the important question is, why'd they stop? Partly because there were orders not to go too far, but also partly because they saw this fainted mounted charge of two brigades of cavalry formed up, sabers drawn, in line of battle, ready to charge. So the, the Confederates halted, and that was the end of the first day's battle. How did they know the first day's battle was fighting was over for the day? Well, they didn't, but there just weren't any more attacks. Both, the, both sides were pretty well fought out. Uh, Lee didn't have his whole army up. Lee only had two of his three corps. Longstreet and the first corps don't arrive until midday on, the July, on July 2nd, and Lee didn't want to bring on a general engagement until his whole army was there. So that, that's a big part of the reason why the Confederates had orders at the end of the day on July 1 not to go too far. Uh, and the Union Army, you know, the Sixth Corps of the Union Army didn't get to the battlefield until mid to late afternoon on July 2nd after a 35-mile march. Was the, was the Union already so f firmly entrenched on their high ground the first day that they couldn't have been dislodged, or was, wasn't it yet established? It wasn't quite that established because at that point the, the, the Union line was on what we today know as Cemetery Hill and a little bit down in the direction of Little Round Top, but it was primarily around the cemetery. And it was a would have been a tough nut to crack because it was just bristling with artillery. And there were the remnants of two corps of infantry up there plus Buford's troopers nearby. So it would have been a really tough nut to crack. A lot of people think that Ewell should have taken Culp's Hill, which he had discretionary orders from General Lee. Uh, he ultimately elected not to, in part because his troops were fought out. I have always maintained that I believe that had 
Ewell, in fact, taken Culp's Hill, the Union Army would have fallen back and the Battle of Gettysburg would have been a one-day skirmish between parts of the two armies. But because Ewell didn't attempt to take Culp's Hill, that allowed both armies to fully concentrate in Gettysburg. And, of course, you know what happened on July 2nd and 3rd. What was overnight like at Gettysburg? On that first night or on the second night or, or both? Just generally, when, General? when the fighting ended for the day, what did they do? What was the, the night time Well, like? what Buford's guys were ordered to do was to go do picket duty. And, and again, one of the primary things that cavalry is supposed to do is to guard the flanks of the infantry. And Buford's troopers were ordered to guard the right, excuse me, the left flank of the Union Army. So they extended from what we today know as the Peach Orchard almost all the way down to Little Round Top, picketing the valley. For them, it was a long night because they weren't allowed to, lamp, to, to light campfires. And many times in that type of a situation, they're not allowed to go to sleep either because they have to be ready to move at a moment's notice. So they will receive orders to stand a horse and they'll literally stand there holding their horse's reins all night, waiting for orders. So it was not a terribly pleasant evening, particularly after having spent 14 hours fighting. And they were expected to perform the next day with no sleep? Pretty much. How often do you visit Gettysburg these days? Not as often as I would like for the simple reason I live in Columbus, Ohio, and it takes me a good six hours to get there. But I try and get there three or four times a year, typically. I'm going to try and get there uh, the week between Christmas and New Year's because I have one Gettysburg book left in me and I need to go spend some time in the park library and do some research. What more do you learn by walking the battlefield now? I have an old friend who spent his career as a combat engineer in the United States Army. And I learned an awful lot from him. And one of the things I learned from him was he always says that the terrain is the, the primary source. In other words, you can't understand decision making and you can't understand tactics and you can't understand how these battles played out without walking the terrain. Every time I go, I see something new. I see something I haven't seen before. It's some wrinkle in the ground that's just been cleared because they cut down the trees, or I haven't walked it from a particular angle, or somebody's pointed something out to me. And I, I can honestly say I don't ever go there without noticing something different each time. So to me, that's what keeps it fresh, and that's what keeps, me, keeps it interesting. Were you interested in Civil War when you were a 13-year-old kid? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I made my first trip to Gettysburg as a third grader. So that's, what, eight, I think you are when you're in, in third grade. And there are really two things, three things that I carried away from me that first day, that first visit. One was the rocks of Devil's Den, but I think that's every kid. But the other two things were the story of Buford's stand and the death of John Reynolds. So I've always been a first-day guy from the very beginning. And... I got interested and I went down, you know, when I got home from that trip, I went to the public library and I checked out the American heritage history of the, the Civil War with wonderful prose by Bruce Catton and the coolest maps ever made. And I checked it out and checked it out and checked it out until finally my uncle bought me my own copy of it. And I was off to the races. And it's been that way ever since. When did you start writing about the Civil War? Why? When? When? 1991. What was the book? It was an article. Mm. And I started with articles, and I, I published probably about a dozen articles before I got up the courage to try and write a book. 
And the book that I wrote is actually the book you and I talked about the last time in its original incarnation, which was called Gettysburg's Forgotten Cavalry Actions. And the, the first edition of that came out in 1998, and that was the first book. And then we did a complete overhaul revision of it that was published in 2011, and that's when you and I met the first time. Why do you think you only have one book left in you? I didn't say that. I said one Gettysburg, Gettysburg book. I've, I've got four or five active book projects. It's just that I've run out of things on the Battle of Gettysburg that interest me enough to put the time and effort into writing a book. I've already covered nearly everything that I want to cover. I got one left in me. You have a lot of different individuals in this book. Um, how often do you come across somebody who you say, that person deserves a book? More often than I would like, because there's too many projects I'd love to tackle and know that I'll never get to. Uh, I'm, I grew up in Reading, and the, one of the primary Union cavalry officers of the Civil War ended up in Reading after the war and became one of the leading citizens of the town, uh, David Gregg, who was the commander of the 2nd Cavalry Division. He was originally from Huntington, Pennsylvania, but he married into Berks County's most prominent family and ended up settling in Reading and lived out his life there. And uh, when I was a kid, the, the, my doctor's office was right across the street from the beautiful equestrian monument to General Gregg that was erected in Reading uh, around the turn of the century. There are things, streets named for him in Reading. There are, he's, he's a very well-known fellow even all these years later in Reading, and he's buried there. And I've always said I would like to tackle a biography of David Gregg, but I just don't know that I'm ever going to get to it. Maybe someone watching this will get Well, I hope somebody will, and if they do, please get a hold of me. I can help you. Your book is subtitled uh, A History and Walking Tour, and in the back you have a, a John Buford at Gettysburg, A Walking and Driving Tour. Why did you decide to take that approach to it? I've been doing that with nearly all of my books for the last better part of 10 years now. People like it. People like being able to go and see these spots and, and to have something they can hold in their hand and say, what happened here? And if they've got the book and they've got the tour that's been laid out, they can do that. And, and since the advent of, of, and commonality of, of global positioning satellite units, GPS units, I've started including GPS coordinates so people can actually program these tours before they ever set foot on the battlefield. And when they, they go, it'll actually just take them from place to place. So you have benchmark four, north 39 degrees, 49.828 minutes. Yeah. Minutes. And you can figure that. You can program that right into your GPS and it'll take you from one place to the next. Do you have a favorite spot? I do. I love to stand by General Buford's monument and stand there and look down the road and look to the west at South Mountain and see things from his perspective and think, what would I have done? And would I have done as well? And he was not there for the whole battle. Yeah, he was ordered to leave midday on the July 2nd. He was there for the second day? Part of it. July 2nd? What, Part of it. What did he do? He got orders to leave the battlefield uh, midday on July 2nd. There's a lot of reasons for it. One is that his command had been constantly in the saddle, constantly marching, constantly on the move, and men and horses were worn out. Horses in particular. They needed to be shod. They needed, some, they needed rest. They needed attention. And um, also, Meade had not made the final decision to stand and fight at Gettysburg as of midday on July 2nd. He was still toying with the idea of falling back to a defensive line in Maryland 
And um, it wasn't until the night of July 2nd when he held a council of war with his generals that the decision was made to stay and fight at Gettysburg. But the decision was made early in the day on July 2nd, about 11 a.m., to order Buford to go to Westminster, Maryland, which was right in the middle of this defensive position that Meade had selected. And it's also where the Western Maryland Railroad has its terminus. And the Western Maryland Railroad was to be the main supply line. So if you're concerned about holding an area, who are you going to send? The guy who's already proven he can do it. So the order was given for Buford's division, his two brigades, to mount up and ride off and, and head to Westminster. And that's what they did midday on July 2nd. And they spent the, the balance of the day on July 2nd and then all of the day on July 3rd guarding those lines of supply and hearing the fighting. You could hear the artillery, particularly the great cannonade before Pickett's Charge which could be heard all the way here in Pittsburgh, and um, wanting to get back into the fight. And they would get plenty of opportunities during the retreat from Gettysburg, but not their, their role in the battle itself was over. Did John Buford write things? Did he keep a diary or write letters that you were able to go to when you put this book together? Uh, unfortunately, it was a common thing among Victorians that if a loved one died, you destroyed their letters because you didn't want anything untoward getting out. And after John Buford died, his wife destroyed whatever letters she had gotten from him. And uh, as a consequence of that, there is almost nothing in the way of personal correspondence. I've, I, in, in all those years of research, we found maybe half a dozen letters. And that's it. Which is why I ultimately gave up on trying to write a full biography of his life was we just couldn't piece the pieces together well enough to tell a story the way I wanted to tell it. So it, it, it was unfortunately a very common thing that happened all too often. And, you know, looking back at it as historians today, you, you go, what were they thinking? But you, you can't look at it that way. You've got to look at it from their viewpoint, which was this was what you did. Did he have any children? He did. He had two, neither of whom survived to adulthood. So no living descendants? Direct, no. But he had two full brothers and along with Napoleon and another six or seven half-siblings besides Napoleon. And uh, I know direct descendants of some of those folks. Uh, there is a state senator from the suburbs of Lexington, Kentucky by the name of Tom Buford, who is a direct descendant of John Buford's full brother, Thomas Jefferson Buford. Um, John Buford's dad was a Democratic politician. You kind of get a sense of it because he <laughs> named his two of his sons Thomas Jefferson Buford and James Monroe Buford. So you can kind of get a sense of what the old man's politics were. Was he the person who named Napoleon Bonaparte Buford? Yes, he was. Before we started this conversation, you mentioned the, the maps in the book. Uh, did you write the maps? Who, who made up the maps? I did not. The, the maps were drawn by a fellow named Phil Leno. Um, Phil is... Uh, really a gifted cartographer, and, and for many years was the cartographer for Gettysburg Magazine, which is how I got to know him from working with him on some of my articles. And Phil created an atlas of maps that's it's probably about that thick. There are hundreds of maps in this thing. And some of them were really pertinent to what I was doing. Some of them with modifications were pertinent. 
and I reached out to him and said, I'd really like to use your maps in the book. And we ended up custom drafting these maps so that they are unique to this because some of the things that I turned up differed from what was in Phil's atlas. So he had to ultimately make changes to his, for a new edition of his atlas so that they match what's in here. But there are 17 maps in there. John Buford did not live very long after Gettysburg. He didn't. He died in December of 1863. Of what? Typhoid fever. You know, typhoid was a disease that you contracted from drinking bad water. And uh, after too long in the field and too long campaigning, uh, and after having lost his daughter and his father-in-law four days apart, he was worn down. And he got sick. And it... Typhoid was one of those things that if it was going to take your life, it usually did it pretty quickly. It'd give you some idea of how tough of a customer that he was, that he lived for five weeks before finally expiring. How old was he? 36. What happened to Excuse his... Excuse me, 30, 37. What happened to his unit after he died? His division ended up becoming ultimately commanded by his protege, Wesley Merritt who went on to have a 43-year career in the regular army and ended up at second-ranking officer. Uh, in between, a fellow named Alfred Torbert commanded it for a while, but ultimately it ended up being commanded by Merritt, who was the right guy. When did they put up the statue to John Buford at Gettysburg? 1895. It was dedicated, and uh, that's an interesting story. It was largely paid for by one of Buford's former officers, um, this fellow had been an officer in the 6th New York Cavalry, made it to major, ultimately got court-martialed and got busted back to captain. And then after the war, he went home to New York City and married a young woman whose last name was Macy and ended up being one of the partners in the Macy's Mercantile Company. He ended up becoming fabulously wealthy from that sold his interest in the company and moved to Aspen, Colorado, where he basically founded the town. If you've ever been to Aspen, there's the Jerome Hotel, it's named, or it, and there's also an opera house named for him. Uh, Jerome Wheeler was his name, so there's the Jerome Hotel and the Wheeler Opera House. Uh, and it was Wheeler who largely funded the statue, but it was also funded by contributions from the soldiers who served under John Buford. Where is the statue if people want to go look at it? It's right on Route 30 on McPherson's Ridge, right across the street from the West Ranger Station and the western approaches of the battlefield. Well, we've been talking with Eric Wittenberg. He is the author of this book, The Devils to Pay, John Buford at Gettysburg. Thank you very much. Thank you, Brian. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.